Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, May 25th starts now. On today's show, making her triumphant return to the Ben Jarofsky show, activist and organizer, Kina Collins. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. It's all there. You want to find more from Ben Jarofsky? Just head on over. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. Spell it for you. J-O-R-A B is in victory S-K-Y Hello again everybody Ben Trotsky here We're calling this Disaster Thursday And here's why Actually all morning I've been wrestling with this decision What do I lead with? Ron DeSantis Disastrous presidential announcement Which will go down in history As one of the worst ever Or Mayor Brandon Johnson's opening His first city council meeting where he gives himself an A. Uh, And uh, I would strongly argue that under the terms by which we judge mayors, he deserves an A. So where do I begin with? Both of them are equally relevant in my mind to where we are right now as a civilization in the society, both on the local level uh, and on the national level. So here's what I'm going to flip a coin. Uh, Heads, Brandon, tails, DeSantis. Here we go. Tails it is. I'm going with Ron DeSantis. What a joke, ladies and gentlemen. You know what? I got to give baby Trump credit, Donnie Trump Jr. Uh, I think he tweeted out a disaster. I think that was his tweet. Get it? DeSantis disaster. What a funny guy, but a witty guy. I think he put it on Twitter. What a joke. What a complete contradiction of everything he supposedly stands for or everything he supposedly represents that would make anybody uh, vote for him. Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is supposed to be the competent manager. That was an utterly incompetent performance yesterday. He was joined by Elon Musk, who uh, is supposed to be a wizard of technology, five steps ahead of everybody else. The guy who is uh, inventing electric cars, the guy who is sending rockets to Mars, the man who remember Rom. Mayor Rahm Emanuel at one point was uh, entertaining the notion that Elon Musk be given the authority, the right to draw, build a tunnel for a super train that would go from downtown Chicago to O'Hare. Remember that moment of idiocy in the city of Chicago? This is the man. He he, What he did was he spent hundreds of millions of dollars to buy Twitter, and he's basically destroyed a company. He's fired so many people, there's, they can't even get the system running anymore. Listen, I was never a big Twitter user. Everybody knows that. I had a boss many years ago who made me go on Twitter. I saw what it was. I said, I want nothing to do with this. I'm not hating on you out there, folks. You love Twitter. God bless you. I kind of love Instagram, so I'm not saying I'm better than you, okay? All right, because I love Instagram uh, as opposed to Twitter. But good Lord, he's mocking you (laughs) with his destruction of the company. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, it was an absolute disaster. There were like 20 minutes uh, of dead sp- uh, of dead time. They couldn't uh, get the show going in time. And then you could hear uh, Elon Musk talking to some, uh, I don't know, flunkies of his. What's going on? What are we doing? Huh? What? <laughs> what a joke. Hey, I got so many great producers, Elon Musk. I got some producer Chris right here. He can get a show going. Dr. D, uh, my dear friend Dennis, he can get a show going. DJ Nate, he can get a show going. No shortage of great producers in the city of Chicago, Elon Musk. Apparently down in Texas, wherever you're at, you can't get anyone who can figure out how to get a show off the ground. Unbelievable disaster. And what a freaking joke. 
woke, 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 woke. That's Ron DeSantis. Woke, woke, woke. I'm fighting woke, 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 woke. Can that possibly be the ticket to success in this country today? Just to say woke, 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 woke. I like people who are asleep, sleep, 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 sleep. I, I just can't imagine that that's the ticket to success, just to keep invoking woke constantly. And by the way, total freaking hypocrites, these two. Musk and DeSantis. They profess to be believers in free speech, champions of free speech. That's why uh, supposedly Elon Musk bought Twitter in the first place. Going to allow everybody to say what they want without whether whether they're right, they're wrong, hate-filled, inaccurate, accurate, doesn't matter. Free speech. (laughs) Meanwhile, like, if you dare to disagree with Elon Musk or your employee of Twitter, they're going to freaking fire you. So much for the employees' free speech. And then uh, Mr. I Hate Woke, Governor DeSantis, has passed so many laws uh, down in uh, Florida about what you can teach or what books you can have in the library. Librarians and teachers don't know what to do. They, they just pulled, like, Amanda Gorman's inaugural poll. How could you pull Amanda Gorman's inaugural What is controversial about an inaugural poll? They're so afraid. They're looking over their shoulders, the teachers, the librarians. They say, oh, we want to promote free speech. People should be able to say what they want to say, even if it offends somebody else. Unless it offends us, then you can't say it. Free speech for us, but nobody else. Such a freaking contradiction. At the heart of this man's campaign are a series of contradictions. One, he says he's competent, and that was the most incompetent election announcement in the history. And two, he says he believes in free speech, and he doesn't believe in free speech. He's stifling free speech in the name of promoting free speech. I can't believe it. Folks, I know Donald Trump won in 2016, but I can make an argument that Donald Trump brings more to the table. Yes. Hear me out on this, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump brings more to the table as a candidate than Ron DeSantis. I cannot believe this country would elect Ron DeSantis. Uh, We're going to bring some somebody from Florida on uh, in the next week or so to explain what the hell is going on in Florida that they elected this guy. They elected him twice. The first time was kind of close. The second time was he got 59% of the vote. 59% of the vote in 2022 he got. It was only in 2012 that Barack Obama won that state. He says he is going to... Do to the country what he did to Florida. That should be the kiss of death of that campaign. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring my distinguished guest who's been waiting very patiently to get her thoughts in. The great Keena Collins from the West Side, the pride and joy of the Austin community who ran uh, for Congress against Danny K. Davis the last time around, came very close in that election. Uh, probably scared a lot of leading Democrats in the city. Oh, God forbid. A young black woman from the West Side has dared to challenge the establishment. Horrors! Welcome back to the show, Keena Collins. Those those pesky kids on the left—they keep <laughs> they keep rising up. They helped Brandon Johnson get across the finish line. We gotta we gotta stop them. I love your take on Ron DeSantis. What a dumpster fire. Um, We have a saying in Chicago, the way you run your campaign will be how you run your administration. And if this is any prelude to what will happen in a DeSantis administration, you know, get ready for malfunction. But you know what I thought was really interesting then is how much of a coward DeSantis is. He didn't go after Trump one bit. He didn't go after him one bit. So not only did he malfunction and and stumble out of the starting blocks, he has zero fight in him to take on somebody who will probably dog walk him in a debate because he's just too cowardly. Um, This guy did a launch and I think he did a few interviews with Fox News during the day, not one attack on Donald Trump. So he's not coming in swinging. Um, That's one thing. And then, you know, I thought it was really interesting that you brought up Amanda Gorman, you know, in a time where we are, we just celebrated, well, not celebrated, rather, we're commemorating um, the one year anniversary of Uvalde, Texas, 
right? These young kids who were gunned down in Texas um, because of loose gun laws, right? Um, DeSantis is ready to ban poems before assault rifles yeah. in this country, right? That's 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 something that we have to, you know, um, we have to consider what's important for the person who uh, will lead this country. And the final thing that I kind of took away was DeSantis is a kind of faking being a Republican here. He's not quite a conservative. And what I mean by that is he did a lot of talk in his opening about expansive use of executive powers. So utilizing all of this overreaching kind of government strong arming that he would do once he becomes president. I thought conservatives, you know, wanted small government. I thought they wanted to take their hands off of the ability for the American people to do things. So I hope that, you know, Republicans are not fooled by this. And I really don't think that he's going to stand a chance against the MAGA crowd. I think they're rolling with Donald Trump. I think they are not leaving him. And I don't think that he's making a strong enough case against Donald Trump in this Republican primary. All right, let's stick with DeSantis and the Republicans for a while uh, before we move to Chicago with Brandon Johnson's uh, victory. Haven't heard you weigh in on that. And uh, his first city council meeting and the role of young people. These are all notes I took uh, on your mm-hmm. open graph, Kina, but let's stick with it. Um, yeah, first of all, the executive order thing. I thought the same thing. He was bragging about how he doesn't even need Congress. He's just going to implement uh, rules through executive order. Uh, let me remind you, he's running to be the representative of the Republican Party, as Keena Collins just said. We just spent the last two years of our election cycles hearing Republicans in this state, Darren Bailey, Kenny G, Kenny Griffin, uh, denouncing Pritzker. For being, as uh, Darren Bailey would say, a t- tyrannical governor That's right. with his executive orders and w- with uh, they went to court. Uh, many Republicans did MAGA. This is called MAGA. That's who they are. MAGA went to court to try to uh, prevent Pritzker from implementing COVID laws and restrictions and regulations uh, and denounced them and said, we must learn our lesson. In fact, uh that's one of the things DeSantis brags about. Yeah, that uh, he didn't implement the restrictive laws. Uh, well, after the start of COVID, he did. But I mean, in the end, in the, la- the second part of COVID, he didn't. Uh, and yet, yes, uh, he is. Um, <laughs> he says he's going to use the same executive orders uh, that uh, Darren Bailey and the others denounced. All right, let me get to what you just pointed out. Get your thoughts on this. You've run now two election campaigns. Uh, and mm-hmm. you went against uh, a, po- a very popular incumbent, okay, uh, on the West Side, Danny K. Davis. Is it possible to do what DeSantis is trying to do and essentially defeat an incumbent? Now, Donald Trump is not the incumbent president, but he's the incumbent leader of the Republican Party. He's the leader right. of MAC, okay? So it's effectively running against an incumbent. I view it that way. Is it possible to achieve what he's trying to do, and that is take Trump voters away from Trump without even mentioning Trump, let alone criticizing Trump? Your thoughts on that tactic? It's impossible. You have to draw a contrast or you have to make a point about why you, instead of this person that we've been rolling with, right? And Let's be real. Donald Trump, in the last presidential election, he didn't diminish his base. He expanded his base. Donald Trump became the second presidential candidate with the most votes ever in the history of the country. Only person above him was obviously Joe Biden, who ended up winning that race. So you're contending with somebody who is an agitation, a complete agitation, and just First of all, let's be clear. Donald Trump is a farce. He's also, you know, um, awful candidate, awful ideas, should not win again. But as far as winning a primary, I don't see what contrast there is except for Ron DeSantis, who is making a very 
fatal mistake for people who really are conservative and saying that I'm going to be more far reaching and heavy handed in government powers intruding on civil liberties. Right. Like that, that's supposed to go against their values. But, you know, um, this is a lost party who has completely lost his soul. I think he's really this is a vanity project for him, for Ron DeSantis, very much so as it, it was trying to it, it was a vanity product uh, project for uh, Donald Trump. The, the problem is Donald Trump has a base and I don't see Ron DeSantis being strong enough. Actually, he's come out very weak um and showing that he would be able to chip away at that base yeah uh and uh by the way donald trump uh will be uh probably in trial uh in new york he'll be on trial he already lost the trial in new york uh on the e Jean carroll uh defamation lawsuit uh for his sexual assault of her she alleges it was rape uh she's going to file uh She's filing against him again. She, I think she already has. Uh, but uh, he will be in trial for Alvin Bragg's uh, indictment of him for uh, uh, shuffling money over to uh, Stormy Daniels. Please. He will be on trial on that when the Republicans are having their primaries, like yep. at the heart of the primary season. And DeSantis wants to win that nomination he has to confront that, you know, one way or the other. So he's either going to say what an embarrassment is for the Republican Party to have uh, this man who's on trial uh, represent us, or he's going to have to take the other route, which is to denounce the prosecutors and say well, it's over. Go ahead. Your thoughts. Not, not, I mean, not only that, he missed the most important slight that he could have which was Donald Trump lost. That is, <laughs> Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden. But because they're all election deniers and they can't say that Joe Biden won, that he can't use that as an argument. So the, herein lies the problem of a party that does not have a compass, a moral compass, does not have a direction, does not have a pathway to victory. This is a losing party. They have no strategy on how to pull in Gen Zers who will come in with millennials as the strongest voting block in this next election cycle because we're the biggest voting block, right? Um, they have no strategy to tackle that. But that, if if you were asking me, who's running against an incumbent, what is the strongest? you know, contrast between you and the, the, the incumbent who is leading the party, he lost. But you can't say that because they, then you concede that Joe Biden won. So um, that would have been the, the strongest argument that Ron DeSantis could potentially make against um, Donald Trump is that he failed to deliver for the Republican Party in the last election cycle, but how did you do that without actually admitting that Joe Biden won? Yeah, no, it's an existential uh, existential uh, dilemma. Uh, there's no way out of it unless you run against MAGA, which is running against where the party is. Correct. If you run against the myths and lies and the cults of MAGA, be it on, well, let's move. You think of the cults of MAGA, the cult, the worship of guns, the yep. uh, hatred of abortion, the um, the denial that Joe Biden was victorious, uh, the paranoia that any prosecution of Donald Trump is a product of the deep state. These are the central precepts of the of MAGA movement, which controls the Republican Party. They're all more or less insane. And uh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, go ahead. That, that, that's interesting, Ben, because in his Fox interview, DeSantis spewed these conspiracy theories. Um, one in particular, which was kind of very, very nerve-wracking, was is he as he was talking about the portrayal of the FBI as one of the many federal agencies run amok. And he would exert much strong control over the entire Justice Department. It's like those entities are supposed to be independent of the president's and the executive 
branch of government, right? Because they may have to run investigations on any of the branches, whether they be legislative, judicial, or executive. So not only does he not quite understand the role, <laughs> quite literally, of the president, he's essentially previewing to the American people that he will strong arm the Justice Department, mm -hmm. right, which is supposed to be an independent entity to the American people in separation and a check and a balance between the, the different branches of government. Very, like, scary stuff. Very scary. Yeah. When you talk about cult, that, that's, that's a very cultish kind of dictator, fascist talking points were very scary about his launch. Yeah. Uh, and at the back of my mind, I have a concern that Joe Biden will not be up to the task of pointing out all the contradictions that you just uh, articulated, pointing out all the dangers and threats. I, he's proved me wrong every single time, Keenan. Okay, I would never. I was not on the Joe Biden bandwagon, as you know, back in 2019. Okay, I'm a, I was a Bernie guy, and uh, Joe was not even in my top five. Usually, when I would, would remember, we had like 20 candidates running. We, Joe know, was not even the top five. Every, I think he once cracked the top five. I just, just ah, I'm gonna throw him in there. I, why not? Monroe Anderson talked me into it. I am blaming on Monroe, uh, and. But he, he proved me wrong. And at some point, I just think all he has to do is exist and he will be the exact opposite of MAGA. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because yeah. really, yeah, go ahead. Your thoughts. Yeah. Well, well, what are your thoughts on these ideas that there won't be any primary debates? And have you heard that about how Fox News and you know, CNN, well, obviously the Democrats, I don't think, will have a primary debate because no one's going to run against Joe Biden. Bernie has come out and endorsed Joe Biden, so I don't think that there will be any formidable candidates running against him. So that's why we wouldn't have, you know, a, a primary debate. But what is that, what is the implication of Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump not debating each other in a, in a Republican primary? Well, okay. Uh, first of all, let me just deal uh, with the Democrats first. Uh, there are two Democrats running uh, against Joe Biden. Right? Or, uh, there are two candidates running in the Democratic primary uh, against Joe, uh, who've announced they're going to run against Joe Biden. I'll see if they make the ballot anywhere. Uh, one is Robert Kennedy Jr., who is an anti-vaxxer. So he is just, he's not a Democrat. I mean, he may right. be running as a Democrat. His father may be a, a beloved Democrat, uh, but he himself is not a Democrat. It's just so it's sort of a joke that he's running in the Democratic uh, primary. Uh, and then the other one is Marianne Williamson. She ran last time um, and she's not really a Democrat either. She used whatever notoriety she had. Uh, once she got some notoriety to go on Fox TV and denounce the Democrats uh, during their convention in 2020. And so, like, she was undercutting the Democrats to the benefit of Donald Trump. And now she's going to go before Democratic voters and ask for their votes. I don't think so. So I don't I don't think this is me speaking. I don't think the Democrats should give them the stage with Joe Biden. They don't deserve the stage with Joe Biden. They're not speaking to what Democrats want. By and large, they're speaking to people who aren't even in the Democratic Party. They should go well, and be running a Republican. Go ahead. Your thoughts. I think that if they meet the prerequisites that the DNC puts forth by polling at 2 percent, polling at, you know, whatever. And like you said, making the ballot that does change the conversation about it. But if they are not, then I don't see why we would have a, a debate there. But you know the DNC changes their rules depending on yes who do you stand. <laughs> I think that two, is bigger, and I think that two percent is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say this: that two percent is ridiculous. You want to be president of the United States? You want to challenge and come? There have been instances when Democratic challengers have gone up against incumbent Democratic presidents. Ted Kennedy against Jimmy Carter in 1980. Eugene McCarthy. Uh, in against LBJ in 1968, they have way more than two percent of the, uh, in the polls. I 
If I put my name out there, I get half a percent. You know what I'm saying? If ben running, Ben for president would get a half a percent just because somebody would just, well, I'll, I'm for Ben. If you follow what I'm saying. So 2% is a joke. 2% matters. If that's where it is right now, I don't know where it is. Keena, 2% matters like in 2019 when there's no incumbent and you have 20 people running and everybody has a chance. But to me, 2% is ridiculous. It's absurd. You're running against to like protect the country against fascism. And you have to have, uh, (laughs) you got to have, you got a threshold of 2%. Good Lord. I'm sorry. I hope the Democrats have more sense than that. And I don't care if Marion Williamson cries that they're mean. They won't give her the stage. You don't deserve the stage. You're a freaking flake. You went on Fox TV to denounce Joe Biden and the Democratic Convention. So why why should the Democrats put you in the spotlight to challenge and under the Biden and undercut that? That's just my view on it. I wish the Democrats would play hardball instead of trying to please everybody. Well, I don't uh, think that they're going to give, I don't think they're going to give the platform to those other candidates. Um, but I do think that a healthy primary is brewing in the Republican Party. Yes. And what absolutely. I mean by that is Nikki Haley, Tim Scott just announced, right? Um, you have Ron DeSantis. You have Donald Trump coming back. So there are things that need to be discussed, I think, in their in their conference um, that it would warrant a would warrant a a debate to happen yeah. in the primary. I think it's going to be interesting to see the RNC pull the rug from under these candidates and not put Donald Trump if he ducks the debate. And really, he could duck the debate if he yeah. wanted to. Yeah, now that's still about- win the primary. Yes. Okay. So let's think about that for a moment. That was the second part of your uh, uh, your opening line. And, uh, and you, there's also uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's running as well. He was the uh, we've talked about him a lot on the show. He was the Republican who came to South Shore uh, last week to try to exploit uh, the uh, the divisions between uh, black residents uh, and asylum seekers. All right. So let's let's just think about this for a while. Donald Trump is just exhibiting his utter control of the whole process by saying he may or may not appear in the debate. And he knows full well he's the star of the show. He knows full well he's the rating drawer. He knows full well that people will watch it, if only to watch him make just a colossal fool of himself or the others. Uh, So it's like disaster TV. He knows that. And he knows if he doesn't show up, the ratings fall, and there's a chance, as you pointed out, that they won't have a debate at all if he doesn't show up. So, uh, he, he, again, he, we talked about how he controls MAGA. He controls the debate process. Now, you're Ron DeSantis. Let's say they say, all right, we're going to have the debate without Donald Trump. Do you go on on stage? In other words, you want to present yourself uh, as, like, in command, in charge. Do you give Tim Scott a platform to attack you? Do you give Nikki Haley a platform to attack you? Uh, Do you give uh, Vivek Ramaswamy a platform to attack you? I don't, I believe he has to go on the, on that debate stage after his horrific opening. You know what I mean? He, he has to, but his ego is so enormous right now. Kina, I could see him ducking it. Because he's like, he wants to be viewed as what? As uh, in control as Trump. I think that would be disastrous. What do you think? I think that um, they're, they're, all of them will duck. I think Donald Trump ducks because his mind is not in the right place in the middle of this primary while he's going through trials. So they're not prepping him properly. I think. DeSantis wants to duck because, and everybody else wants to duck because they don't want to punch at Trump. Not a single Republican candidate who has come out has punched at this man. And he lost the last race. That, I mean, he is responsible for not only losing the last race, but there were other seats like in Georgia where two Democrats ended up taking Georgia. 
Um, so Republicans have lost Senate seats in key states that ended up giving Democrats slightly an upper hand um, in places like the Senate. You're leading the party, right? When you talk about this midterm election, yes, the Republicans took the House back, but then you have an embarrassment like George Santos, right? And completely embarrassing. You got Kevin McCarthy having to be voted in 15 times. <laughs> I mean, he's completely lost control of the Republican Party and the people who are um, running it are the Lauren, Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, quite frankly. Um, yes, do they support Donald Trump? Okay, but what an embarrassment that somebody like Kevin McCarthy couldn't even get his conference together to get him a simple vote in as, as Speaker of the House. So I think there's a lot of things that could be discussed on that stage, but I think everybody has a reason as to why they would duck. Uh, yes. All right. Uh, by the way, you mentioned uh, Tim Scott before we leave national, go to local. Uh, he announced the other day uh, he was criticized by Whoopi Goldberg on The View. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, and then almost immediately, this happens all the time, Keena. Almost immediately, I got a fundraising appeal for him. I've said this on the show many times. For some reason, I don't know. I do not know why. I swear to God, Keena, I've never given a nickel to any of these people. They have my email address and they constantly send me fundraising appeals. MAGA does. All of them. Absolutely. Every single one of them. Uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, Donald Trump, et cetera, and so forth. So Tim Scott sent me one. I don't know if you got if you get them, but I'll read to this to you. Uh, the headline is Whoopi Goldberg. Here's what he writes. I knew it wouldn't take long. The Democrats were right on cue. Just a few hours after I officially announced that I was running for president of the United States, I was already under attack. And then there's a picture of Whoopi Goldberg and uh, a link to the article that says, Whoopi Goldberg suggests Tim Scott has Clarence Thomas syndrome. And then he goes back, Democrats will do everything they can to undermine me, my experience and my story, because I'm a threat to their narrative. They're more interested in cheap shots and scoring political points than progress. They're more invested in inciting anger and hatred and ensure they win the next election. That's why I need your help. Then he's shaking me down for money. All right. Uh, is there any part in your uh, humble opinion of Tim Scott's uh candidacy and his uh, opening salvo against Whoopi Goldberg that might pick up votes for him uh, among black voters? No, no, absolutely not. He does not have a snowball's chance in hell and really scraping off black votes. And I'm going to tell you why. Black voters and particularly older black voters who really turn out um, during these elections. And really, we're talking about the strongest voting block of Black folks, which is 50-year-old and older working-class Black women. That is, when you talk about Black voters, you have to talk about who can really strike at the heart of Black women, because they represent, we we represent the largest voting block in Black America. Um Joe Biden, I think, to Black folks, has not done a awful job, right? As awful as people were saying, he's the oldest president and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, there were some things that we believe that Joe Biden could do better, but is it enough for the power to, uh, to trump the power of incumbency of Joe Biden and his relationship with the Black community? No. So... Um, First of all, Tim Scott has to overcome the fact that Black folks don't even know who he is. <laughs> you know, people who are in this political bubble, because he hasn't done much for Black folks in the Senate. So, you know, all they're going to do is pull his voting record, and but it won't even get that far, I don't think, because I don't believe that he's going to get the name face recognition he needs in Black areas. So um, not only is he standing on the wrong side of history, about a lot of this stuff that's happening in the Republican Party. Um, and you're still remaining a Republican. Two, we don't know who you are because you're not championing any issues that are important to Black folks in the United States. Three, you've made very detrimental votes towards the Black community in support, standing in support with Donald Trump. And four, he's not he doesn't have enough clout to Trump the incumbency and the power of incumbency of a Joe Biden who has longstanding relationships in the black community. So, um, no, <laughs> that's a long uh, I, way to say no. Yeah. Yeah. 
I uh, and he's not going to win uh, with uh, MAGA votes. Because, no, no. Yeah, he's, he's he's not. I mean, my my uh, theory of MAGA votes for uh, uh, black candidates, black Republicans, is that if Donald Trump endorses the black candidate, MAGA will vote for them. So, like Herschel Walker got uh, MAGA votes down in in Georgia, but they didn't even want to vote for him. They didn't want to vote for Herschel Walker. Those MAGA, you know, voters, they only did it because he was Republican. And Donald Trump endorsed him. And Donald Trump endorsed him. But if you were reading and listening to some of the folks in Georgia, they were saying they didn't like either candidate. That was essentially, and there wasn't a strong enough independent candidate. So, you know, I don't know how how far that's going to go. Inherently, that MAGA base is racist. But what's interesting as we we get ready to talk a little bit about the local politics is the strategies that Republicans are putting into place in major democratic cities, like with the migrant crisis, right? right. And so when you talk about stripping some of those votes and how do you kind of strike at the heart of black voters and turn them Republican, well, you use the tactic that they were built on, which is fear. That's their strategy. Let's let's get to that. Uh, let's get to that. Since you mentioned it, let's talk about. It. I had a whole bunch of things I wanted to when we made the switch uh, to um, uh, to local politics. Uh, but no, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to give you a shout out. I don't remember this. Uh, you predicted that Brandon would win. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> 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 and so you were right. I was wrong. I, I mean, I wasn't really. I was like blowing in the wind. You know, you, you, know. Were, just, you were cautiously optimistic. Yeah. That's what yeah. Uh, but one of the things that happened, we'll, we'll get into the MAGA inroads, because this is a very important point that you raised, MAGA inroads uh, in uh, with black voters in Chicago. Um, we'll get to that. But one of the points you made earlier uh, is – you made this before the election and uh, the election board out. Young people showed up to vote for Brandon Johnson. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the this, uh, the analysis of the election turnout, uh, I think it was in BEZ or the Sun-Times. I can't remember who did it, but or maybe it was a tribute. I've read so many. Um, actually, the only significant increase between the February election uh, and the uh, April runoff was among young voters. Yep. Boomers, like, voted less. You, you know, I mean, it's always usually the geezers who come out to vote, like people like me. And, but, like, our ranks fell. Your generation showed up more. It And, and Brandon Johnson, God, I hope the Dems are paying attention to this stuff. <laughs> Brandon Johnson's victory was because, to a large degree, or to some degree anyway, because young people voted at a greater, they, they saw something in this election that made them turn, turn out at a greater percentage uh, than they usually do. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that the reason why I foresaw a Brandon Johnson win for a couple of reasons. Number one, coming off the heels of our primary run against Congressman Davis, which is basically all of the city of Chicago. It's all of the West side, all of downtown, all of this, well, parts of the South side, Chinatown, like all these areas. We came within striking distance of, you know, taking a 25 year sitting incumbent out of his seat who's beloved. You know, Lori was not beloved and Paul Vallis is not beloved. So Brandon came in with all the elements we didn't even have in our campaign, the labor support. He came in with a movement lens, right? So he went straight. He knew that a lot of elected officials probably wouldn't just jump on his side. So he went straight to the community groups, the independent political organizations, right? That was something that I really paid attention to Brandon's campaign was that IPOs really stepped up early and invested in his race. And really what he did was he he just replicated a very impressive relational organizing model. And that's how you get young people to the polls. Relational organizing is basically your hair 
hairdresser or your barber or you know your cousin telling you hey vote for brandon johnson this guy's talking about x y and z and that is the best form of campaigning that you can do it's better than mailers it's better than tv ads it's better than anything that you could do and i think that young people really started talking about what is the future and what do we see as a vision for the city of Chicago and the things that Paul Vallis were talking about increasing police presence and, you know, taking money from very nefarious figures, people who don't support reproductive health care, right? Those things were things that people were paying attention to. And here's the final thing that I'll say. Brandon's campaign was really smart and did a really good job at digital organizing. I saw a lot of folks online and in social media who were regurgitating and speaking about the talking points that Brandon's campaign was built on. And so when you can create a narrative around a candidate or a story and you can paint a picture and a vision of what that candidate is going to do, and then people can start repeating the talking points of the campaign deck, then you you have a really successful campaign. And so um, I think young people really paid attention to that and they started talking to their friends and they didn't just go to the poll. They brought people to the polls with them. And here we are. Here we are. Uh, Brandon Johnson's first city council meeting. Uh, he, he gave himself an A. OK. <laughs> I said, he get the grade himself. OK, Mayor Johnson. Right. Uh, and, Educator uh, Johnson. He gave himself right. an A. I will read to you his quotes as to why he uh, gave himself an A, I will then comment, and then you're, the floor will be yours to riff on the, the A, okay? So here we go. Uh, the, so this is in the context of getting the council to vote 41 to nine in favor of his proposed council reorganization. We talked about this many, many times on the show uh, where uh, the mayor, essentially, there's a tradition in Chicago, the mayor names the uh, chairs of the council committees. Uh, there was an effort right before the election to have the city council independently uh, name its own chairs. Brandon Johnson nixed that, uh, and the, he came up with his proposal, and the council passed it 41 to 9. There are 50 votes uh -huh. in the city council, okay? Um, and here's what he said about that. Uh, if you're keeping score, I believe it was 41 older persons voted for it. I mean, I would consider that an A grade, Johnson told reporters after the meeting. I mean, I don't know what a brother's got to do to get a high five around here, but we made history today. <laughs> That's pretty funny, Brandon. Uh, all right, somebody respond to that. Uh, well, I'm just going to say this, Brandon. Back in the day, okay, when I went to school, uh, if you got 40, you got 82%. That's not an A, that's a B. Okay. If you view it, <laughs> Keenan Collins back at Von Steuben High School, you take a math test, you got an that's 82%. Right. I, that's not an A, that's a B. Okay. I don't know what I, I wish Brandon Johnson was my teacher. I would have been a straight A student, actually. Well, you know, he talked about that. He didn't fail any of his students, he said. He didn't, he didn't fail any of them. Uh, and I would like to say Von Steuben Metropolitan Science and Math Center. So 82% does not fly as an A. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, well, but here's ahead. what I will say. Yeah. Really, it was an A plus for the progressive movement in that happening. And here's what I mean by that. We have in this last, really since the inception of really Karen Lewis bursting onto the scene and saying that we needed a change and the way that Chicago looks at education, looks at you know communities that deal with poverty, and you draw a direct line from Karen Lewis all the way down to a Brandon Johnson, we have we we have pushed the city council to the left, right? And a lot of these things, I would say that that was like a procedural thing, and this is just like the start when we really get into the nitty gritty of the votes that are going to start talking about the budget what we're spending our money on, um, crime, right? Public safety. That's when the real test is gonna be put into place around how well Brandon is gonna be able to build coal coalition with folks who don't necessarily come from his political family. And so I, I do say though, that is impressive. That was impressive.
I think, oh. because there was a lot of contention, as you probably remember, Ben, leading up to the election, just about um, what's going to happen in the city council and how are these chairs going to, you know, go. And, and he pretty much got what he wanted. Well, yeah. All right. And so let me deal with the second part of what you said, because uh, Raylo opined on this, Alderman Raymond Lopez of the 15th Ward, uh, who uh, just give everybody, it's important you understand the evolution of Raymond Lopez. I followed his career since the moment he entered the council, began as more or less a Mayor Rahm loyalist, uh, discovered okay. independence during the era of Lori Lightfoot. I welcome it. Better late than never, I always say. OK. Uh, and now is apparently still discovering independence. Uh, uh, in the era of Brandon Johnson, because he's essentially a conservative. Uh, I don't know if he's a conservative Democrat or conservative Republican. He claims to be a Democrat. So, Raylo, I'll take you at your word. But you're conservative. Uh, Raylo urged Johnson to, quote, learn from Lightfoot's mistake of reaching the bare minimum of 26 votes instead of striving for the collaboration that would have gotten her to a unanimous 50 votes. Uh, this is what he told us sometimes. I, I'm going to deal with that right now. First of all, the bare minimum is not 26 votes. It's 25 votes. That's all you need because the mayor breaks the tie. It, it, if it's a tie, 50 people in the city council, if it's 25, 25, the mayor's at 26 votes. Harold Washington learned that back in the 80s. Uh, and that's the situation we have in the Senate where Kamala Harris breaks the tie. OK, so you only need 25. The notion that the mayor is going to get 50 is absurd. Uh, Kina, you pointed it out. This was a more or less a procedural matter. It was an easy vote for an alderman to go along with the mayor or an alderwoman to go along with the mayor, particularly if they were getting a chair. It's going to be a lot harder, let's say, on the matter of funding uh, asylum seekers. It's, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to get 41 votes. The notion of getting 50 votes for something as contentious uh, as funding asylum seekers is absurd. So if you're going to run the city of Chicago in a way that you feel is appropriate, if you're going to run the city of Chicago in a way that you feel is most compassionate, if you're going to run the city of Chicago in a way that expresses your values and grows the city and makes the city stronger and safer, you're going to have to settle for some 26 or 25 votes. And shooting for 50 is ridiculous. The age of the city council, it's a different city council than it was when uh -huh. Mayor Rahm came waddling in uh, in 2011 and all the dummies in Chicago voted for him because they thought Barack Obama had endorsed him when, in fact, Michelle Obama kicked him out of the White House. It's a different right. city in Chicago, you know, and the, Raylo's not going to vote for migrant aid. No. So no matter what you do, you're never going to get his vote. It's, it's so Well, it's, it's, we need ahead. to talk about the elephant in the room because me, you, and Monroe – I remember we had this conversation and it was brought up even with the critiques that David Axelrod had about Brandon Johnson. The bars are different for these black politicians who get a lot of fanfare around them. Let's just be real. It is different. Of course, someone who sits on a different political spectrum of Brandon Johnson does not want to see him succeed. And so that bar will continue to move about what success is and what it isn't. And any logical person would take the stance that you just took, Ben, which is 25 is the is the number. Because once he gets 25, then if he wants it to happen, it will happen, right? It the the ordinance passed passes into into law. And Raymond Lopez is not the voice of moral authority. He needs to <laughs> he needs to worry about the stuff that he's doing. Um that that just is harmful to the fabric of the city of Chicago, which is a, a podcast and it's an episode all in itself, um, right? Um, but no, that is to have 41 older people come in after you've proposed an idea to them, right? You've stripped the idea that they had and you proposed the idea. That is impressive. That is impressive. And so we have to continue to build off that. And what I would say to Brandon Johnson supporters in places, um, because you got to remember, Brandon ended up winning places like Tom Tunney's ward when Tom Tunney stumped against Brandon. He beat the brakes off of Paul Vallis in places like Emma Mitt's ward, right? Which, you know, we knew he was going to win the West Side, but people who stumped against Brandon, Brandon, uh, 
he punched above his weight class in those wards. And so his supporters now, if they want to see these agendas in the, in the policy platform that he um, pushed for path, now they have to pl- apply the pressure on their aldermen, right? Like it's not, it's not just the Brandon can propose these things and people, like you said, will just fall in line. No, now you have to um, apply the pressure on your aldermen to, to help Brandon achieve that agenda. But I thought 41, I thought he did, did well. That's impressive to me. Listen. Uh, I just got to go back and help people out with your David Axelrod reference because when you made when you made it, I smiled because I remember that conversation. And you were on on a Wednesday with me and Monroe, uh, and uh, you were the young person in the room with the two old geezers, uh, and you were very polite to us. I appreciate that. But we were, this was before the election, and we yep. were riffing on an uh, article in one of the papers where David Axelrod was opining, uh, and he said, "If he." <laughs> I'm just laughing thinking about it because this shows a bias that that actually Rob probably doesn't even know he has. Who knows? I, I can't read the man's mind. So he said that Brandon Johnson could do well for himself in the debates if he can emulate what Harold Washington did, did in his debates in 1983. Ladies and gentlemen, Harold Washington is perhaps the most gifted politician I've ever seen. He's one of the if he's not the greatest debater I've ever seen, he's in the top five. I saw right. Mario Cuomo debate in New York, and that man could debate. Ed Koch could debate. There's some great debaters I've seen, all right? But Harold was right there. So you're saying Harold has to be the greatest, okay, to yep. make the team. Meanwhile, Paul Vallis could be any old doofus off the street. Well, that's good enough. He's. It just showed the bias. It just showed, like, black people have to be ten times better yep. than the white guy before – well, they got a chance. If he could be Michael Jordan of <laughs> politics, he has a chance. Meanwhile, right. Paul Dallas can be like John Paxson. You know what I'm saying? Just any old guy in the NBA. I don't mean that. And I wonder how David Axelrod feels now about this. This, You know, well, you know, Paul Vallis is just a policy guy, and he gets it. This dude wasn't even paying his campaign workers. You know, but he's the ultimate budgeter, right? Like he couldn't, he got stiffed out of $750,000 to put up yard signs. And this was, and that's why we have to be leery of these talking points that get thrown out. And that doesn't mean that uh, the movement space, we don't hold Brandon Johnson to account, but Brandon already came in saying that he wanted to move in a, in a model of co-governance, right? So yes, we have to hold him accountable. We also have to beat back these uh these these talking points that get put up about candidates like Brandon, which by the way, he wasn't even raising the amount of money that Paul Vallis was raising, and yet he was still neck and neck with him in all of the polls. So, you know, it should have just told you that the groundswell was happening. But yeah, that that's gonna happen and the bar is gonna continuously move for candidates like Brandon, especially black candidates. All right, let's talk about MAGA and Rhodes. Let's talk about the divide between uh, black and Hispanic voters in the city of Chicago. It was on display to a certain degree. Oh, it's been on display now uh, for the last week or so. There were the uh, the contentious hearing at South Shore High School a couple of weeks ago where some of the residents uh, were just out and out reading from the Trump script uh, on terms of building a wall. Uh, it, it, it yesterday, city council, there was a defer and publish on the, on the proposal to spend $51 million uh, resettling uh, uh, the asylum speakers. And one of the people who voted against it with Anthony Beal uh, of the ninth ward. Uh, my guess there may be a, if when it actually comes to full vote, well, we'll see what the vote is, but there may be other black aldermen uh, who uh, joined Beal in that effort. Keenan Collins, uh, you're running as a justice Democrat. Uh, you're a Bernie Sanders. I think you were a Bernie Sanders supporter. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and um, you're more or less a lefty. Uh, how do you bridge this gap that's existed here in the city of Chicago uh, so that MAGA doesn't continue to make inroads uh, in black uh, and Hispanic communities for that matter? Take it away. I mean, the current we've pushed the city council to the left. And black folks had something to do with that because we helped elect uh, Brandon Johnson. We helped elect 
Angela Clay. We helped elect Lenny into office in this next, you know, go round, right? Um, the way that they make this right is that they cannot invalidate the feelings of Black folks in the Black enclaves in the city of Chicago. They are very much justified. And I think that people are missing what Black residents are saying, right? Because I think it's easy to see this as xenophobic when 10 years ago, the Sun-Times actually, I think in the Trib, actually did um, uh, amazing reports about the 10-year anniversary of the school closures here in the city of Chicago. All of these promises that were made about, you know, the enrollment is low. If we shut these schools down, you know, it's better for the kids and these neighborhoods. And it has not been, right? For 10 years, for a decade, uh, politicians have sold a, a, a dream to Black folks in these communities that there was nothing that they could do to reopen these schools, right? And so now there's a migrant crisis and these buildings are sitting dormant. And what do we do with people who have literally in a humanitarian crisis have crossed over into the border and now being brought into the city of Chicago? What I've heard from Black residents is a, a deep level of pain that their parents too, and they don't have a problem with the actual migrants who are coming, but their critique is about the politicians who have left these communities abandoned, Black communities abandoned for very long. And it, you got to think about how we've been told also on the West Side, for example, we don't have money to open a youth center. We don't have money to get you new grocery stores. Oh, but y'all found money to open a cop academy, right? We found $100 million to open a police academy um, on the West Side. And so I think what Black residents are, are saying is that we have not felt the investment in our young people and the homeless folks who um, live in our community, unhoused folks rather, um, or the returning citizens, right? And we're, we're not feeling that. What I want to, you know, interject to people in the, the very conversations that I've been having with some of my colleagues and peers who are Latino was that it's not either or, it's in both. That we can't operate from a scarcity mindset because billionaires and, and major corporations like Amazon who have come into the city of Chicago, they do not operate from a scarcity mindset. They take whatever sweetheart deal we put on the table, we slash their taxes by millions of dollars, Lincoln Yards, Sterling Bay, the 78, everybody who has come in, we have found the casino getting ready to be built in the city of Chicago. We have found the money for these corporations. Now it's time for us to find the money to validate and justify the feelings of neglect and fix and mend that in the Black community and figure out how we could bring safety and peace to these migrants who are, who, who have stretched some of them 2,000 miles to get to the United States to get to safety and they're now being used as political pawns by the GOP being brought into the city of Chicago. Right. And so um, our federal government is going to have to step in. Our city government is going to have to step in. And guess what, JB, you got to step in, too. You got to step in as well. So that's my take on it, that it's not either or it's in both. And we need to not operate from a scarcity mindset. Uh, that was a great riff. And I agree with it. And I will say this to that. I believe I said this before. and I'm really uh, I'm, it's coming clearer in my mind, Keenan. This is a huge failure by the Democratic Party to seize an opportunity. Right. And listen, you're right. Gregory Abbott's playing games. Governor of Texas is playing games. He's not going to stop playing games, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? He's not going to stop the buses coming in. Migrants are coming yep. into this country. He's going to continue putting. This is a winning ticket for him with MAGA. All right? And he, lo and he loves the discord here in the city of Chicago. But Democrats... Democrats expose kind of an inner hypocrisy. They say, we love our neighbors, and then they freak out when he brings new neighbors into the neighborhood. And I just wish Democrats would say, thank you, Gregory Abbott. 
our city population fell because our mayors <laughs> pursued these insane policies, many of which were supported by Raylo and Anthony Beal, just saying. That's right. But now we're going to see this an opportunity. We need housing. We need community centers. We got to find places for people to live. Our schools, we're going to need teachers because there's going to yep. be more kids for the schools. That means more jobs. So South Shore residents, more jobs for you to build this housing. Let's go. And that'll require federal funding. You're right. They can't forget the feds because this is a federal issue. But That's a federal issue. You know, the Democrats are so afraid of their shadow. They want to have but it both ways. Let's talk about people like Raymond Lopez, though, by the way, who has taken campaign donations from the GEO Group, the second largest private prison contractor in the globe. This man has taken money from people who built these private detention centers. So, of course, it is advantageous for someone like him to come out and say these things or vote against, you know, resources going to uh, migrants here in the city of Chicago. But but what I really just want communities of color to understand is that the success of one demographic and group of us is not to the detriment of another. And we don't have to subscribe to that. We don't have to subscribe to that. I always, you know, hear the stories about my grandparents fleeing from the South to come to the city of Chicago because of white citizen councils and KKK members. Now, yes, there are natural born citizens that were born in the South, but in a lot of ways, in similar shades, they were asylum seekers too. Right. Because they had to leave those areas and come and build prosperity here um, on the West Side and, and, and become homeowners and do those things. And people said the same thing during the Great Migration of Black folks <laughs> who were moving into these cities and building these cities up, that there was an infestation and it was this. The core of all of this then is white supremacy. The core of this is greed. It is capitalism. It is saying there's not enough for all of us. So since there's not enough for all of us, let's pit the least of these against each other to fight over the crumbs. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that when Amazon and these casinos, like I said, and all Lincoln Yards and all these, organ these, these companies came in and we found the money for them. We found a plan for them. So um, I think, you know, I've, I, Black residents in the city of Chicago, we cannot invalidate our feelings around this because we've been told constantly that they don't have the resources. But I want us to just take a real hard look at this moment. And is this a moment of unity or is this a moment of allowing, you know, them to tear these, pit these communities against each other and tear them apart? And I hope this is a moment of unity. All right. That's good, Riff. And that's good uh, as any to close it. I'll just point out uh, that's a great line about this uh, scarcity mindset, because when Amazon was coming to Chicago or, or when Chicago was begging Amazon to come to Chicago in about 2017, Mayor Rahm and Bruce Rauner was offering untold billions of dollars in public subsidies. Plus, pick your land that you want to Amazon for $50,000. That's $2 billion, billions of dollars, way more than the $51 million that the city council is offering. You know what I'm saying? For To deal with the complexity of bringing 50,000 new people in the city of Chicago. Now, of course, it turned out to be a big fraud. They, they didn't build uh, a uh, an office complex anywhere. And so now we're heading in the other directions where people don't even work at the office. So the notion of, just think about that, how the world has changed. But the city of Chicago, I didn't hear anybody except for a lefty like me objecting to that. Uh, every single politician I know were lining up. Oh, yeah, 50,000 new people in the city of Chicago. How much money? <laughs> Let's spend right. whatever you want. They, Mayor Rahm wouldn't even tell us how much he was offering them. He said he had to abide by the non-disclosure agreement. He wouldn't even tell us. Uh, Kina, at least the city council is having a vote on the 51 right. million. The first go, Rom would say, None of your business. We'll tell you after we cut the deal. Oh my God, thanks for nothing. So right. you're, yeah, no scarcity when it comes to Amazon's 50,000, but suddenly scarcity for the 8,000. That's a good point. All right, Kina, Colin, anything you want to add before I let you go? Any, uh, anything you want to promote? Anything you want to say? The floor is yours. No, except for if I'm not on before then, happy Juneteenth. 
to everybody. Juneteenth is getting ready to come up. There'll be a lot of celebration events across the city. Plug in, uh, figure out how you can celebrate Juneteenth with us. Very good. Uh, thank you very much, Keena Collins, the pride and joy of Austin and Von Steuben <laughs> High School. Don't forget the Von Steuben part of that. It's always a pleasure talking politics with you, Keena. Also want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job. I think Keena Collins will agree with me when I say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Don't forget, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.